faith, you know. Well, what is faith? Can anybody have faith, really? How do we know if we have faith? Well, there's a lot of questions around faith, but this is the place to grow our faith together. And I'm so glad you've joined us. This is Faith Is. And I like to say faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we're going to talk about that again today on the program. We're going to look at a Bible story. We're going to answer some important questions like, does God really, really mean for us to be reverent toward him? When God gives us clear instructions, does he really mean for us to follow them? Is it optional to do what God says? Are there consequences? Well, we're going to look at a few of those kinds of questions today, and we're going to put it in the context of one of the interesting Bible stories. And and you've heard me say it before, the Bible stories are important because when we know the stories of the Bible, we have examples of the way people behaved and how God responded so that we will know how God expects us to behave and how we can expect Him to respond when certain things happen. And we can have good information good examples of how to live our lives so that when we face a challenging situation, we can think, did anybody in the Bible encounter this kind of challenge? And almost every time we can find a parallel experience where someone is teaching us how we can live in our day. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm so glad you've joined us because we really do want to grow our faith together, and we want to strengthen our understanding of God. We want to correct our misunderstandings and deepen our confidence in Him because we can have confidence in God. He has demonstrated that over and over. But as we'll see, God does expect us to listen when He speaks. And even though we might think it's a small thing, there was a small thing in some people's eyes that resulted in a big deal. And that's the story we're going to look at today. Well, I'm so glad that you joined us. And I want to give a shout out of appreciation to my church, Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. I am the pastor of that church, have been since 1997. And we are continually delighted that you joined us continually hope you find this helpful that we're doing on these programs every week, continually desiring for these to be for your benefit. And we don't do them for our benefit. We do them with the hope and the anticipation that you will find a spark of understanding, a reason to grow in grace, confidence to trust God, to develop that kind of faith that will stand the storms of life and that will see you through whatever whatever might happen in your life. Because we all know that life has its ups and downs. It has its ins and outs. And the more we can have confidence in God, the better we're able to navigate all of those things that take place. So let's take a look today at, at one of the interesting stories in the Bible, and it revolves around the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you may have heard that reference, and I just want to briefly help us understand what we're talking about when we're talking about the biblical box. I guess you could say it was a box. We'll talk about that in a minute. The biblical box that's called the Ark of the Covenant. Well, God instructed his people to make a wooden box, to overlay that box with gold. The box was about 
three and three fourths feet by two and a quarter feet by two and a quarter feet. So it wasn't a very big container. It was a very big box, but that was what he told them to make, told them to make it out of wood, overlay it with gold. So it's pretty fancy design. It had rings that were on the four corners of it so that rods could be put through the rings. And so the ark could be carried. It required special handling. And God had explained all of that to his people. Only the Levites were to carry it and to use those rods and not to, to lift the box in the way we typically would. No, this was a special, special item called the Ark of the Covenant. And God wanted them to treat it carefully in accordance with his expectations. Now, you may have heard of the Ark of the Covenant in various contexts, and, and sometimes that's used for one thing or another, and I understand that. But what the Bible talks about is this wooden box overlaid with gold, not too big, required special handling, and it went in a special place. Now, we understand that when Israel left Egypt, they went to Sinai, God gave them the Ten Commandments. They began to form their new identity as God's people, or perhaps we could say reform it after all those years of slavery in Egypt. But they recaptured the sense that they were God's people, and they began to form that community around faithfulness to him. And one of the things that God did was he instructed them to build a tabernacle, a portable tent of meeting, you could call it. The Bible refers to it that way, where they could place that enclosure, that tent, that tabernacle in the center of their camp, and then all of their camping, all of the tribes of Israel would camp around that central focus. It would remind them that God was their God and they were to follow him. It would remind them that, that he was with them. It, it was a very significant part of what they began to do, because remember, when Moses said to Pharaoh, that God was instructing him to let the people leave Egypt so they could worship him. It wasn't just about leaving Egypt. It was about worshiping God and for God to return to his central place in the life of those people. And so the tabernacle represented that. And this particular container, this box, was a significant part of that because on top of the box, there were two figures described as cherubim, and it was believed that God actually lived between those cherubim. So, well, without getting ahead, let's let's go a little farther. So, uh, with the story of the tabernacle. So, the, the Ark of the Covenant was placed in what was called the most holy place in the tabernacle. Very special handling, very special and prominent place. The Ark was to be there. That was what God commanded. Now, it was a symbol to be sure, we'll talk about that, but it was also a container because inside that box, inside that container, they had a few items and this developed over time. They weren't there right from the beginning, obviously, but over after some significant events in the life of Israel, the first one did happen even before the tabernacle was set up. And that was when Moses received the 10 commandments. So the, the tablets that, carried the Ten Commandments, the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were inscribed were placed in that container in the Ark of the Covenant in the box. Later, when God gave the people manna, and you probably remember that story, 
God gave them manna because they needed food and they were in a wilderness place. They didn't have food. They were moving from place to place. And so every morning God provided them manna. We don't know exactly what manna was. It was something they could eat. There are some descriptions in the scriptures about that, but we still don't know exactly what manna was. It was by all accounts, uniquely designed and provided by God for that time. And so they would go out in the morning and gather what they needed for the day, and that would provide food for the people. The next morning, they would do the same thing, except the day before the Sabbath, they would gather twice as much because it needed to serve them for that day and for Sabbath. So they put a sample of manna at one point in the Ark of the Covenant, and it would remind them of God's provision and how he had been with them during the time they had spent in the wilderness. And also Aaron's rod had been used symbolically following a rebellion, and it blossomed in a most unique and miraculous way. And so that rod, which had played a vital role in many incidents in the life of God's people, that rod that blossomed was then put into the Ark of the Covenant. So it was it was a box elaborately made, overlaid with gold, with these two figures on top called cherubim, placed in the most holy place of the tabernacle. It contained the Ten Commandments, a sample of manna, and Aaron's rod. But one of the things we should most emphasize is the importance of the Ark. Well, it was important because God had given all these instructions about how to make it and all of that. But the real importance was that the Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's presence among his people. Now, that's really significant because it's the only concrete symbol of God's presence that the people had. It was not an idol, and we need to make sure we remember that. It was not and never intended to be an idol but it was symbolic of God's presence with his people. Now, you remember in the Ten Commandments, God had said, don't make any, and we often use the phrase, graven image. Don't make any image for you to worship. He didn't want an image made of him or any other image for them to worship. He was special, and he could not be contained. That's one theological way we look at that. He could not be contained by an image and did not want to be reduced to an image in the eyes of the people. He was, after all, God, creator. He was king of kings and lord of lords. He was Lord God over all gods. And so he said, don't make an image, but he did give them a symbol, uh, an evidence, we might say, of his presence among them in the Ark of the Covenant, which was kept in the tabernacle in a special place. Now, it wasn't the first time God had shown them a visible evidence of his presence with them. You probably remember when they left Egypt, the scriptures de describe a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that led the people out. Well, the cloud they could see during the day, and it went before the people, and they followed it, and it was God showing them in a visible way that I'm leading you, and so they followed the cloud. Really quite fascinating. At night, it became a fire in the sky, because they could see that at night. They couldn't see the cloud, obviously, at night, but they could see the fire of God's presence in that cloud, leading them, guiding them, protecting them. It was that fiery presence, that cloud, that moved from in front of the people 
to behind the people to keep the Egyptians away while they walked across the Red Sea on dry land. So the ark was not the first visible evidence of God's presence, but neither the cloud nor the fire nor the ark were intended to be idols for the people to worship. That was not what they were at all. It was simply God saying, between these cherubim on this Ark of the Covenant that I'm telling you to make, I'm going to, to dwell there. And in fact, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, God says to Moses that he would meet him between the wings of the cherubim. So when Moses had gone up on the mountain to meet God, now God said, I will meet you here in the presence of the Ark, and that's where you'll find me. So it's a very significant symbol in the life of God's people. And, and God wants us to understand the importance of that, but he also wants us to understand that it wasn't an idol and that sometimes we can learn a lot from the symbols he gives us. And so we're going to explore that a little bit today and, and learn some things from this amazing symbol that God gave his people. And, and by the way, in case you're wondering, uh, we all would wonder, we don't know what happened to the ark. It, it's been lost as far as anybody knows, and nobody really knows what happened to it. It, it was superseded, of course, by the coming of Jesus, and perhaps it was God's—and uh, this is just my idea. I don't know whether we can prove any of these things, but perhaps it was God's way of saying that we needed to focus on the coming of Jesus, and maybe he realized that at some point, if the ark remained present, it would be turned into an idol— and that would be a terrible temptation for people. And so he allowed it to be lost in, in history somewhere. Uh, I sometimes say when, when we get to heaven, we can check out the DVD and watch and see what happened with all these things we don't know the answer to. But here recently, I've been having to say, I guess we'll be able to stream the video to see what happened. Now, I don't know if we will or not. But those are the kinds of things that the Bible has not told us about. And we need to recognize when the Bible doesn't tell us something we'd like to know. Apparently, we don't really have to know it, and we can get along fine as we are. And so that's what we accept about the Ark. It was a very significant symbol, but now it's lost, and that's okay. Okay, so let's pick up the story of the Ark and its role in, in the history of God's people. And it had played a significant role, including when it was time for them to move from one camp to another, that the ark went before them and led the people. And again, it was symbolic of God saying, I will lead you. You can follow me. And I'm, I'm the way to go. Um, he's still saying that to people today, by the way. Follow me. I'm the way to go. And so they would follow him and as the ark was led, carried by the Levites. And God's presence continued to lead them toward the promised land. Well, let's fast forward through the story quite a lot. And we'll come to the, the story of the ark being at a place called Kiriath-Jerim. Sometimes it's called Baal Judah, maybe another name you might see sometimes. It's all the same place. It just goes by different names, uh, depending on what people are calling it by name. It just, that's the way they did in those times. So, so the ark was at this place, Kiriath-Jerim or Baal Judah, and it had been there for quite some time. Now, why was the ark there instead of in its, what we would assume was its rightful place? And indeed, as the story unfolds, we'll find out there was a rightful place for it. But here it was at Kiriath-Jerim. And the reason it was there is because 20 years earlier, the Philistines had captured the ark in battle. 
And this was not terribly uncommon in those days when armies went to war, when groups of people went to war, they would capture one another's idols and take them home as part of the, the spoils of war. That was true when Nebuchadnezzar took Babylon, and it was true here. In this case, they captured the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the Philistines took it home as though it was a prize, and they thought it was, but it caused them nothing but trouble. Very interesting story. Nothing but trouble was caused for the Philistines because they had taken what wasn't theirs and what didn't belong to them, and um, God was showing them and us some important things. So the Philistines took the, the Ark of the Covenant, and they would not have understood probably that it was just a symbol of God's presence. They would not have understood all of the dynamics that God had explained to his people, but they did understand that when you brought home a God from war, from, a, from an enemy that you defeated, then you would take that to the temple of your God because by virtue of the victory, it was assumed in those days that your God, the victor's God, was the stronger God, and so you would bring the subservient God into your God's temple where that God could take its place below your God and be put, as they, we might say, be put in its place. So they put, they put the Ark of the Covenant in their God's temple, Dagon's temple. Well, they get up the next morning, and their God, Dagon, had fallen on his face before the Ark of the Covenant, just fallen over. No explanation. No one had been in there and done that. Just fell down, face down, before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what's significant about that? Well, to be sure, it's significant that God knocked it down, but it's also important to notice that in those days when a person of lesser stature, we might say, would come into the presence of a great person of higher stature, stature, they commonly would fall face down before the exalted person. That was the way they showed their uh, homage to that person. They would bow face down before them. So here, what they thought was a subservient God had come into Dagon's temple who should now come under Dagon's control or authority, they found instead that Dagon had fallen face down before the Ark of the Covenant. Something was going on there, don't you think? Yeah, something was definitely going on. Well, one time they didn't understand that. They didn't know how, how to explain it. So they just put Dagon back in his place and went on from there. And they went back the next morning. And the next morning, same thing. Dagon had fallen on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. Two days in a row now, Dagon has fallen face down before the Ark of the Covenant. And on this second time, there was more to that story. Because now Dagon's head and hands had broken off and were lying on the threshold of the the, the walkway into that temple. Only his body remained in place, face down before the Ark of the Covenant. Really fascinating thing there, really fascinating, because that was exactly what happened when David defeated Goliath. You remember that story? 
the Philistine giant came out and taunted God and God's people. And David went out and struck him down. And he fell, remember, Goliath fell face down before God and God's people. And then David finished the job by beheading Goliath. So here, Dagon has fallen face down before the Ark of the Covenant, and his head and his hands were broken off. Very similar to what happened in that story of David's defeat of the Philistine giant, Goliath. So something is really going on here. Something serious is going on here. This Goliath who had threatened David, who had cursed him by his Philistine gods in an attempt to intimidate him and with the threat that he was going to destroy him, finds himself destroyed and his gods defeated. And now, sometime later, here it is, we're talking about Dagon, the Philistine god, falling before the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the Philistines knew by the second incident that something was up and it, it alarmed them. So they moved the Ark out of Dagon's temple. They, after all, they couldn't have their God falling down before the Ark of the Covenant. So they moved the Ark out of that temple to another city. But in that city, the Lord, and it says this in the scriptures, if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, where you see this story told, says in the scriptures that the Lord afflicted the people of that city with tumors and death. So imagine, they moved this Ark of the Covenant, which they thought was a prize from their victory, which they thought meant their God was stronger, only to find out that the God represented by this Ark not only put their God, their idol God, in its place, but now in a new city, those people were afflicted with tumors and death. Well, they caught on pretty quickly and realized they needed to send the ark back, that it was not a good thing for them to keep it. They consulted their advisors, and they told them what they needed to do to send it back. And so they prepared gifts of gold to send it back. They, they prepared a new cart that they would put the ark on to send it back. And they got all of that ready and sent it on its way, and it went back to Israel. And that's where we pick up the story that it had been at Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years. Fascinating part of that is that it went back to Israel, but it didn't go back to its rightful place. Things were still developing, and apparently it wasn't time for the ark to go back to where it belonged. Well, that didn't last forever. 20 years is a long time for it to be there, but it didn't last forever. At the end of that time, David had now become king of Israel, and he had taken his rightful place. Remember, he had been anointed some time before that, but now he was king, and he organized a mission to restore the ark to its rightful place. And the story of that takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and you can read that. It's quite fascinating what happened there. We're going to walk our way through that story, but I'm not going to read the entire text. It's quite a long long passage to read, and I think we can tell the story. And I would encourage you, while I'm telling it, follow along in the Bible. You'll pick up some details that I that I don't mention, and you'll you'll really grasp the story quite quite well. It's it's really one of those probably not as well known Bible stories, but really fascinating. So anyway, David organizes this um, this huge 
a huge number of men, um, some of the best young men of Israel, 30,000 of them he organizes to send down to recover the ark. And so they go down to Kiriath-Jerim to get the ark. It's accompanied by a huge fanfare. I mean, enormous fanfare. And they're starting out with the ark accompanied by these 30,000 men to return the ark to where it really should, should be placed at the center of life of God's people. So away they go. They place the ark on a new cart. Remember, the Philistines did that as well. And it's important that the scriptures mentions a new cart because that means there was no ritual impurity and, and something needed to be ritually clean. That was important. God had been explaining that to them, the importance of, of a clean item, a clean life. So the new cart had no ritual impurity because it hadn't been used for anything else. And, and it, if they had used an, an old cart, one that had been used for other things, it could have been ritually unclean because maybe it had been hauling dung at one time or another, or perhaps it had been used to haul dead animals at one time or another. Uh, any of those two things and, and likely others could have made it unclean. So they used a new cart, that's to their credit. However, you remember in my earlier description of the Ark of the Covenant, I said that it had rings so that it had, could have poles through those rings to carry it because the Levites were supposed to be the ones to carry it. And the ark was, by God's instructions, was to be carried by Levites, not carted. It was the pagan Philistines that put it on a cart. And God had told his people not to carry it that way, not to transport it that way. It needed to be carried by the Levites. So they should have known, in, indeed, there's no reason to think they didn't know better. And they should have known to do it differently, but they didn't. They did what the Philistines had done to move the cart or move the ark back home to the city of David. It's also important to make sure we, we capture this idea here that, that this was an, this ark recovery mission was not a military mission. Now it, it says in, in verse one of chapter six, second Samuel chapter six, that uh, David took 30,000 able men of Israel. So there's a, there's a, strong suggestion by taking that many people that it was some kind of military mission. Well, it really wasn't a military mission. It was really more of a worship event. Now, to be sure, the, the presence of that many able men would have kept anybody who had mischief in mind uh, away from carrying out their mischief. But at heart, this was a worship event with a parade, with um, what we might describe as a marching band. It describes a lot of instruments in here. We might think of a, some kind of a flag team or maybe a drum team going along. Uh, there's a lot of parallels we could come up with in, from our experience. None of them are like what's described in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6. But nonetheless, it is the idea that this was a huge, significant worship event and, and meant to honor God and to celebrate the fact that the Ark of the Covenant was on its way back to where it belonged because it had not been in its rightful place for more than 20 years. And now David as king was going to do that. It's also probably symbolic that, that God was with David because God seemed to be reinforcing the idea that David was his, his chosen king and David was doing what was right and the people would have understood that. So it reinforced what, what God was trying to do to rally the nation to, to follow him 
and to make David an effective king that would lead the people in the way they should go. So they had this huge event, huge number of people, dramatic celebration, and all of a sudden something happened and everything changed. I mean, everything changed in a way that would be easy for us to say, what in the world was God up to? David felt much that way, and we'll talk about that. We would certainly understand why David and others would be horrified at the events. We would easily, easily understand their concern and probably have a pretty easy time of agreeing with them, but we dare not because what happened was very consequential, but very instructive. And we need to learn from that because we want to be people who develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And sometimes when God does things that we don't quite understand, it shakes our confidence. This was one of those occasions. Sometimes when God does things, we, we have to kind of step back and say, well, I trust God, but really, God, what's that all about? Well, that's part of what we could say was going on here in this incident. And yet in all of these things, in all of life, it's important for us to step back, even when God does things that we wonder about, or when he doesn't do things that we think he should do, it's important for us to step back and reinforce our absolute confidence that we can trust him. So in just a moment, we're going to take a break. When we come back from that break, we're going to talk about this incident, this event that so shook David and the people that they didn't take the Ark of the Covenant home. Stay with me. I'll be right back. We'll finish the story. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com. H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L -E and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio.
Welcome back. You're listening to Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we're developing our faith, our confidence in God. We're learning how to have faith when sometimes it seems like God does things we just can't quite grasp. And we're going to look at a, the story of, of David taking the ark back to its rightful place and an event that happened that might shake everyone's confidence if we didn't step back and think about that a little bit more. So I appreciate you being with us. I appreciate your your desire to develop confidence in God. Over and over, the Bible urges us, reminds us, helps us develop that kind of confidence, and it doesn't shrink from challenging things. It doesn't hide them. In fact, it uses stories like this one to help us make meaning of our lives, make sense of what's going on, and remain faithful, and to, to continue to have confidence in God and not back down even when things look really confusing or really complicated or really disappointing. God wants us to know we can trust him, and so we're doing that. So we left the story that when David was recovering the Ark of the Covenant. It had been with the Philistines. Then they sent it back for 20 years. It had been at Kiriath-Jerim or Baal Judah. Sometimes it's written that way. You'll see both names used. And David has become king and now decided that the Ark needed to be returned to its rightful place in the city of David, what we would call Jerusalem. There was an area called the city of David before that geographical area was called Jerusalem. So they had this huge worship event, huge parade to take the ark back to Jerusalem. They put it on a cart, a new cart, and away they went, celebrating all the way. Well, along the way, the scriptures tell us the oxen stumbled, and a man reached out to steady the ark, a man named Yuza. And he reached out to keep, by all apparent accounts just simply to keep the ark from falling off the cart. He reached out to steady it, but touching the ark of the covenant was forbidden, considered irreverent. In fact, when you read in the New International Version the story of the ark returning to the city of David or Jerusalem, it says in verse 7 of 2 Samuel chapter 6, the Lord's anger burned against Yuza because of his irreverent act. So when he reached out, he touched what he shouldn't have touched. And as a consequence of that, God struck him down and he died beside the ark. In a moment, just like that, he died. Well, what do you make of something like that? Here's a man that that was trying to do good by all our understanding of it, of this account. He was not trying to be offensive to God. He was trying to do something good. And so we have to ask the question, what's going on here? Well, one of the things that's going on is that when God says that he is to be reverenced in a certain way, he means it. And I can almost hear some of us saying, certainly I understand why we would, would think this, but, but Yuza meant well. He wasn't trying to be offensive to God. He, by everything we understand, he was trying to be helpful. Well, 
yeah, probably he was, but yes, absolutely, touching the ark was forbidden. And it's described in 2 Samuel chapter 6 as irreverent. And God responded in the way that God would have been expected to respond, and this gentleman died beside the ark. You know, we need to take a lesson from that, not to be upset with God. Now, you might be upset with God, but dial it back a little bit, take a step back, take a deep breath and think about it. We're losing a sense of this idea that when God gives clear instructions, he expects his people to follow them. And God had given clear instructions about how the Ark of the Covenant was to be handled. And so here, sadly, Yuza loses his life when he violated God's clear directions, God's clear instructions. You see, God expects us to follow his clear instructions. That's one way we demonstrate our confidence in God, is that when we follow his instructions, we show that we have confidence in him. Whether we understand them or not, whether we think they make sense or not, whether we can make some meaning out of what God has asked us to do, or whether we still have wonderment about it, he expects us to follow his clear instructions. You see, what, what we have to come to grips with is that we have to come to the point in our lives that God's commands are our convictions. You know, years ago, people talked about convictions. They, they wouldn't do certain things, or they did certain things because they were convinced that God had convicted them in their hearts that they needed to behave that way. And, and we've kind of let that slide a little bit. Now, some of you might be thinking about the problem of legalism from years ago, and I'm not at all suggesting a return to that. Don't hear me saying that at all. What I am saying is that in our move away from or resistance to the concept of legalism, we have too often allowed God's commands to become optional. And so I want to challenge you today to make sure that that when God has clearly said something, that that clear instruction has become our conviction. Simple example of that, the Bible says, don't steal. Don't take stuff from your neighbor. Don't take stuff that doesn't belong to you. Well, a whole lot of us have that conviction that we're not going to steal from anyone. We respect what belongs to them, and we're not going to steal it. If we walk by someone's car in the parking lot on the way to the grocery store, and we look in there and we see a thousand bucks laying on the back seat right there for the taking, we wouldn't take it because we are convinced. We have a strong conviction that God says, don't take what belongs to someone else. In fact, some of us feel so strongly about that, that if, if something like that were to happen, and I doubt if it ever would, we would stay by that car and protect that $1,000 so that when the owner got back, it would be there because we are so convinced that we need to follow God's commands and not take the $1,000 and not let somebody else take it. So part of the question today, when we think about this incident of touching the ark is, is not, was that right or wrong that what God did or what Yuza did? The real question is, for us, what clear command of God are we resisting? Has God laid out something very clearly to us that, that we're holding back on? I mean, 
think about this, pray about this. I, I don't know what God might be saying to you right now, but he might be saying something that, that you recognize, and you might have been resisting his clear command. You, you, you want a little idea on how to measure spiritual growth? You see, spiritual growth is when God's commands become our convictions. And likely over time, if you follow Jesus for a while, you have developed some convictions to say, this is who I am. This is how I'm going to live my life. I'm not going to do this. Even though some of those things that we that we limit ourselves with, our Christian friends might do. But we say, not me. I'm convicted that God wants me to say no to this behavior. So the question for the day related to this incident touching the ark is, what clear command of God are you resisting? You see, when, when we do what God clearly expects, then we are demonstrating absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. We are demonstrating that we have faith. So, do you have that kind of faith in God that when he says this prohibition is not for you, when he gives this clear command, do you have faith to believe him and to act on that clear command? Or do you want to try to say, well, God, you say that, but there's also these people who say this or these people who say that. Um, today, many people claim to mean well by the things that they say to God. But you know, too often people claim that they mean well, and they just use that as an excuse to do as they please. Now, are we going to be the kind of people that that want to rationalize and do as we please? Or are we going to be the kind of people that say, now, wait a minute, God has clearly said this, and I'm going to make that a conviction in my life. You see, people want to do as they please rather than please God. And that's really what we're coming down to, isn't it? Are we willing to be people that will please God? And sadly, in this situation, reaching out and touching the ark, trying to steady it and keeping it from falling was not an attempt to please God. Might have been thought that way, might have been a reflex in the moment, don't know all of that, but we do know that God expects us to reverence him and to follow his clear commands. They need to be our convictions. Now take that a step further. Let's, let's go from this inf incident to ask another question that, that I think is absolutely important for, for these days. Do you ever ask yourself, what's wrong with the world today? Why do we see so much going on that is so contrary to what people have always thought was right? That people turn what we've always understood and believed to be right into something that's wrong or turn something that's wrong into something that's right. I mean, things get turned on their head right and left these days. Have you ever asked yourself, what's really going on with all of that? Why is that taking place? Well, it's taking place because people have decided that they don't reverence God. They're going to do as they please, not as God says. They're going to do what they want to do, not try to please God. And in Romans chapter 1, we get some really, really clear insight on this. Romans chapter 1 has a number of things, but but the heart of what's going on there is that 
God is explaining to us, explaining to us through the writer, through Paul, the writer of Romans, that what's really happening in the world is that people know God and know who he is, but they refuse to, to acknowledge and honor him as God. Let me just read a couple of verses from Romans chapter 1, verses 21, 22, and 23. This comes from the message, so it'll sound a little different than, than the English translation you may be used to, but it's very insightful to help us understand what's going on. Romans chapter 1, verse 21, from the message. People knew God perfectly well, but when they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship him, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. They pretended to know it all, but were illiterate regarding life. They traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hands for cheap figurines you can buy at any roadside stand. I think that captures what's going on so, so well. People knew God perfectly well, but they didn't treat him like God. Think about that. Consider that. Isn't that what's happening? People know God perfectly well, but they don't treat him like God. Haven't for years we've seen all the polls indicate that people feel nice toward God, kindly toward God. People believe there is a God. I don't know today what they would say. I haven't seen any of that lately. But even people who understand there is a God and, and agree that there is, they don't treat him like God. They refuse to follow his clear commands. And, and this translation from the message says, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. Doesn't that explain what's going on today? People are confused, grasping for something, really asking the question, who will save us? See, they pretend they know what they're doing. They look in one place or another, but they have rejected God. They have failed to treat God like God. And the result is this silliness and confusion that's described by the message. No direction left in their lives. They just don't know what to do. And I want to challenge you. You know God. You know what to do. Stretch in his direction. Stretch toward his high calling. Don't trivialize him. Don't trade the glory of God for what this passage of Scripture calls cheap figurines that you can buy on any roadside stand. No, pursue the living God. and Follow him. I'm convinced that's one of the important lessons from this story for us today that we should not take God for granted. We should not believe God will understand. We should follow his clear commands and make his commands our convictions. In fact, the more you can do that and the more you choose to do that, the more you will demonstrate spiritual growth in your life. Well, the incident of the ark, the incident with Yuza stopped everything. Yes, when, when he reached out and touched the ark, God was angry, and he respond, responded with death. But it also says in the scriptures that, that David was upset. David was angry. He 
wasn't quite sure what had gone on here. And it also says he was afraid of God. And, and so consequently, David left the ark at the household of Obed-Edom. So, so understand that if you get angry at God for this kind of thing, or if you're afraid of God because of this, understand that that's not such an unusual response. That's, that was David's response too. And, and he stepped back from, from returning the ark to the city of David, to what we now call Jerusalem. He left the ark at the household of Obed-Edom, and he went home, left it there. Three months later, word came to David that, that because the Ark of the Covenant had been at the home of Obed-Edom, the Lord had blessed that household. For three months, they had received the blessing of God because the Ark was there. Well, that got David's attention. And uh, also from the message, the, that English translation of the Bible, it says that, that David, when he heard that, he, he thought, I'll get that blessing for myself. And so he did. You know, we ought to think about the blessing that God has for us, and we can receive the blessing of God when we do what God says, when we allow God in, when we welcome him to our household. So David, having heard what was going on, having heard about the blessing that the household of Obed-Edom had been enjoying because of the ark, he returned, took another huge group of people, formed a parade, went down to retrieve the ark from Obed-Edom and returned the ark to its rightful place in the whole, in the city of David in a tent that he had built special for that. This was prior to the building of the temple. This was what David could do. And of course, if you remember the story, David was not allowed to build the temple. David was kept from building the temple because God said he had been a warrior and his son needed to build the temple. But he put it in, in this special place reserved for the ark, honoring God so he could have the blessing. And it took its rightful place in the city of David, what we would call Jerusalem, the capital city of that day where, where David lived and where he ruled the kingdom. There is blessing in the presence of God. You know, one of the things we need to think about is that, yes, God expects us to reverence him, but it's not a uh, capricious kind of expectation. It's a reverence that's clear to us. We know God shows us what we need to do. He shows us what he expects. He expects us to, to change our lives and give allegiance to him, for example. And, and so when we come into God's presence with our hearts turned toward him, then we can expect to experience the blessing of God. And we need to kind of look around for our blessings and count them, don't you think? We're going to count our blessings at church on Sunday this weekend. Maybe you need to take some time to think about counting your blessings, because there is blessing as demonstrated by this story and clearly demonstrated by Obed-Edom. There's blessing when God is where he's supposed to be. And here he was honored. Here he was protected by the household of Obed-Edom. And David realized that there's blessing where God is. I'm going to go down and move the symbol of God's presence back to the city of David, what we call Jerusalem. Now, there's a, there's a personal side of this as well as a corporate side, I think. In first, or, sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 3, there's a discussion of how people sometimes can't see what God wants them to see. 
And, you know, for some of us, that might be the way the story of, of uh, Yusa appears. We can't quite get our minds around that. And, and the Bible describes that people who have difficulty with grasping what God is up to as, as though they have a veil over their eyes. They just can't see clearly. It's all, it's all kind of vague to them, and it won't come into focus. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible tells us this. Whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now think about that. If you have trouble understanding, turn to the Lord. Whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. See, that's the promise of God to the people of God who want to turn toward Him and to allow the Lord to come in. In the same way, Obed-Edom welcomed the ark into his household, and ultimately David welcomed him, the ark into his city, the city of David. We can welcome God in, and when we do, the Spirit of God comes and makes us new. We don't have to be the way we once were. We are made into what the Scripture says to a person that reflects his glorious image. We become made new like the Lord. That's quite a big promise, quite a challenging one, but it's for you. If you'll turn to him, that's the invitation. Turn to him and welcome him in. In the same way, they welcomed the Ark of the Covenant and reverenced God. When we welcome God and reverence him and trust him, have confidence in him, then there is a freedom to that because the Spirit of the Lord gives us that freedom. And we can begin to reflect the glory of the Lord because he makes our lives new. I think it's also true for churches. And I want to say again and encourage you again, find a church, a church that's closest to the Bible, not the church that's closest to your house. Find a church that's closest to the Bible and show up to church every week. That's one of the things that God has told us we need to do. That's become a conviction for many people. But for many people, they just think if they go to church occasionally, maybe a few times a month, maybe a few times a year, that's enough. But God has called us to gather together, so I want to encourage you, find a church. Show up every week. Let that be a conviction in your life. That's what God's talking about when he wants us to turn to him and to follow him and to allow him to do his work in us, because then, you see, not only do we enjoy the blessing of God, but the church then becomes a blessing to the people around them, because the church is the presence of God in its community. And we put all that together, then it is remarkable what God can do in you and through you and with your church. So find a church. Don't hold back. Go find one that's close to the Bible, that trusts God, and can help you grow and develop convictions that demonstrate your confidence in God, because we want to have faith. We want to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Well, that's a pretty big story for today, and it's a lot to think about, and I hope you will think about it, because I want you to be able to be challenged by God. I want God to give you something to, 
to stretch you in his direction because when we stretch in his direction, we glow, we grow and we enjoy reflecting the glory of God in our lives. And, and I want all of us to do that. And we will never be perfect in that, but we can get better. And I want that for you as well. I, I appreciate so much you listening every week. And if you would be so kind as to do me a favor, mention the program to a friend. Now, they may or may not be able to listen at the time that it's broadcast. I understand that. But we also put the program together in a way that you can listen to it as a podcast. And so you can find the program wherever you find your podcast. And maybe you would be so kind as to go there and subscribe. Maybe you would share it with a friend. You can subscribe to the program, download a program and share it with a friend and say, hey, take a listen to this and you can learn how to have confidence in God because God really is trustworthy. I hope you'll say a good word for us. Maybe give us a good rating on there, but mostly share the message that there is a God that we can trust who cares about people, who is eager to welcome us into his presence and eager to help us have confidence in him because he wants us to know we can trust him and come what may, we can and we will trust him because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I'll see you next week.